Today I ask, what do a baker's comment from season 11 of The Great British Bake Off, a Eudora Welty television interview, and a merman from Michigan all have in common? Well, they all explore ideas of monstrousness, but the good kind of monstrousness, the kind that makes our work rich, bold, memorable, and unique. Come along with me as I bravely enter the monster-filled haunted house of creativity. Be right back. You are listening to Pep Talks for Artists, a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toledo. Recently, I was watching The Great British Bake Off, Season 11, Episode 3, to be exact. And a contestant, Rowan, was getting absolutely eviscerated for his lumpen, double-decker bread blob. Hideous, marveled Paul Hollywood. It looks monstrous. How much flour did you use? Uh... And you know, the heart goes out for his baking snafu. But later on in his interview to camera, Rowan appears completely unruffled, shrugging, quote, I'd rather be monstrous than mediocre. Monstrous? I'd rather be monstrous than mediocre. And when I heard that, I vowed to take on this attitude in the new year, to be more monstrous. Obviously, not in the sense of committing crimes or anything, but art-wise. In continuing to peel away the layers of should, can't, or embarrassment that prevents an artist from portraying their truest form. The word monstrous or monster reminds me of this segment, a rare television interview with Southern author Eudora Welty on William F. Buckley's firing line in 1972. Buckley had her and Walker Percy on to discuss the Southern imagination in literature. And he asked her about whether a Southern author has a responsibility to write political tracts or pamphlets. And even though Eudora was known for a powerful story that she wrote one night in 1963, Where is the Voice Coming From?, which dealt with the assassination of Medgar Evans, she replied that tracks are important, but they can't be everything. I don't know. I see the novel or literature, whatever, you, just as if it were an ocean and all these various things like the novel of protest, the novel of this and that, are just like little chips floating on it. But I feel that the, that the novel itself, which is a work of imagination, is so much more profound and so much more full of monsters and beautiful things and all sorts of just a big world in itself, that that's the part that matters. That will always be there. And that all these other things just come and go and float around on it. 
they're important, but they're not everything. Well, you, you're talking now exclusively as, as a novelist, and... Uh... Well, that's all I am. Right. To her, monsters and beautiful things are what constitute everything that a novel can hold. It's like a stretchy net expanding to hold the full work of the self, no matter how strangely scary or lovely dark and deep, as Frost says. In his book, The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield says, quote, We fear discovering that we are more than we think we are, more than our parents, children, teachers think we are. We fear that we actually possess the talent that our still, small voice tells us. That we actually have the guts, the perseverance, the capacity. We fear that we truly can steer our ship, plant our flag, reach our promised land. We fear this because, if it's true, then we become estranged from all we know. We pass through a membrane. We become monsters and monstrous." End quote. When we think of artists that deal with the ooey-gooey underlayers of the artist's psyche, we might think of Goya, Dubuffet, and Enzer, or Francis Bacon, or the eponymous Monster Roster Group from Chicago. But also, some contemporary examples come to mind. I thought of artists like Brenda Goodman and her self-portrait too, or Steve DiBenedetto's Rosemary's Baby's Baby, or Whit Harris's The Maiden. In Goodman's self-portrait too, a hulking figure in light beige on a beige background shoves its face with tons of little color splodges, a la Cookie Monster, into a toothy maw. The face is smooth and simplified, noseless. It's a painting about the interior self, its desires, hungers, disgust, and humanity, at its most vulnerable and raw. And in De Benedetto's Rosemary's Baby's Baby, which, truth be told, attracted me with its title, has a rainbow-hued, goopy skull dripping down against a green background. Each hole in the skull is a clogged world in itself, kind of like a piece of butchered meat or a rotten apple, an image of self in the advanced process of decay. But because one eye is higher than the other, it looks out almost with an air of shy hope. Or thirdly, Whit Harris's ceramic bust, The Maiden. A screaming figure with five thick green braids lifting up over the head like snakes. The body and eyes are pink and splattered with brown drips and pores that create a rusted, corroded effect. The eyes remain pink on pink. A figurative artist, Harris's past forms exude a languorousness and serenity, a pleasure-seeking vibe. In this one, however, a Medusa awakens from under the deep, full of naked rage and power. 
My research told me that women and femme-identifying artists may struggle more against societal norms and expectations to follow their inner monstrous star. In Art Monsters, Unruly Bodies in Feminist Art, author Lauren Elkin says, quote, There has always been something monstrous and excessive about the relationship of women to art. So much going on beneath the calm surface. Female artists were always, to some extent, deviant, making art when they should have been doing something else. They risked, in short, being seen as grotesque transgressors of womanliness, end quote. In light of that quote, one can't help but think of Macbeth's mischievous witches cackling, fair is foul and foul is fair, subverting everything in the natural world. In 2017, MoMA held a show of Louise Bourgeois' work called Unfolding Portrait, and I love that title. I feel that way when I look at her drawings and etchings. And one in particular caught my eye, her Femme 2006. In a Whit Harris way, she uses the head and shoulders of a woman with hair that lifts up off her head into the air. But it's less like snakes, more like a lightning strike, her dark locks drooping down in black spider leg strands. And in her etching, we see a metamorphosis beginning to flow so strongly through her body that not even her hair is left inert. She is kinetic, unfolding before our eyes expanding and preparing to molt into a bigger, more lambent self. A million portraits can only begin to define her. Sometimes stressed out, anxious, overthinking, Louise's femme is also a spidery fertility figure, also free, childlike, and aflight. It's this idea of monstrousness that I want to channel. I looked up all the definitions of the word that I wanted to emulate, and I came up with this edited list of ways to become fearless in one's work, like Louise and other aforementioned monster channelers. Here goes. One, be often gigantic and not afraid to have extraordinary and overwhelming size. Two, embrace ugliness on occasion. Three, be shockingly wrong and or ridiculous. Four, deviate greatly from the expected form. Five, court intensity. And finally, six, welcome in the strange. Please feel free to adapt all or some of these for your own purposes. Since we artists are a visual people, I propose that we look to an aspirational monstrous avatar, specifically the Michigan Merman. In Monsters of the Midwest, True Tales of Bigfoot, Werewolves, and Other Legendary Creatures, 
Authors Jessica Freeberg and Natalie Fowler tell the story of a monster sighting in 1782 by Venant Saint-Germain, a Canadian fur trader, on Pie Island in Lake Superior. One night, Venant was setting up camp with his buddies and decided to walk to the lake to check his fishing nets for dinner. Sipping from his skin of rum as he walked, he soon reached the shoreline and saw the water shimmering like glass in the moonlight. Suddenly, to Venant's shock and horror, emerged from the lake a half-man, half-fish, with a face full of curly fur and a sassy hand on one hip. It raised the other arm in a greeting to Venant, and the only thanks it got was a shotgun immediately aimed at it. An Indian guide stepped in with a warning before he could pull the trigger and commit mermanicide. This creature was sacred and was called Meime Gwashi. And if he had killed it, he would have been cursed. Even just threatening it brought on an angry three-day storm. And I wonder if each of us also has a beautiful curly-faced monster longing to levitate sassily out of our own glassy lakes, ready to disturb all our usual ways of thinking and encourage us to go deeper and be more fearless in our work. And P.S. I recently checked in on Rowan Clouton from Bake Off on Instagram. Since the show, he's been happily sharing recipes for pickle juice martinis and elaborately overpiped cakes and lemon chickpea stews, pretty much living his hashtag best monstrous baking life. To thine own monstrous self be true. This year, I hope you'll join me and the Meime Gwashi and Soren Kierkegaard as we quote, go fishing for a thousand monsters in the depths of our own selves. Let's unleash the beasts. Free our flying purple people eaters. Let's blow it out, knock them dead. Play rock and roll music through the horns in our head. Let's be gigantic, ugly, wrong, ridiculous, unexpected, intense, and strange and gain the audacity to show monstrosity. You've been listening to Pep Talks for Artists, and I'm your host, Amy Toledo. Thank you so much for listening. You can find images that go with each episode, including this one, over on Instagram, at Pep Talks for Artists. And more about me, yours truly, at Toluts. All links are in the show notes. And many thanks to Pep Talks patrons for their continued support. Thank you also to Martha Garvey for her Buy Me a Coffee donation this month. Thanks, Martha. And as always, I really appreciate you stopping by. And I'll see you next time.
you little monster.